Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder, and Carrie is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor S. Matthew Lau. His new book is titled The Right to be Loved. It has just been published by Oxford University Press. Matthew is Director and Associate Professor in the Center for Bioethics and Affiliated Professor of Philosophy at New York University. It seems obvious that children need to be loved, that having a loving home and upbringing is essential to a child's emotional and cognitive development. It also seems obvious that, under typical circumstances at least, for every child there are adults who should love them, It is perhaps not surprising, then, that many national and international charters and declarations specifically ascribe to children a right to be loved. But the idea that children have a right to be loved looks philosophically suspicious. Questions arise almost instantly. Could there be a right to be loved? Could children hold such a right? To whom would the correlate duty to love a child fall? What would this duty require? One might also then begin to wonder, what are the implications of such a right for our usual understandings of family, parenting, child-rearing, and adoption? In The Right to be Loved, Matthew Lau works carefully and systematically through all of these questions in providing a compelling defense of the idea that children indeed have a right to be loved. This is a fascinating book with a bold thesis. Accordingly, there's a great deal to talk about. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Matthew Lau. Uh, Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? Oh, doing very well. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us on New Books and Philosophy. Um, It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Well, fantastic. Um, and thank you, listener, for, uh, for tuning in. Um, my guest today is Matthew Lau. Uh, his new book is titled The Right to Be Loved. Matthew's book is a very careful and deliberate analysis of our moral obligations and duties towards children. Um, more specifically, Matthew's book defends the thesis, and it's a uh, surprising thesis uh, in much of the philosophy world, I think, that children have a human right to be loved. Um, Now, uh, as Matthew is well aware, and as I'm sure a lot of our listeners are already uh, aware, um, the very notion of a right to be loved uh, strikes uh, many as as curious. Um, How could there be a right to be loved? Um, To whom does the correlate duty of such a right fall? Um, And moreover, how can children have a right to be loved? Uh, these are all uh, sort of questions that immediately come to mind uh, once Matthew's thesis is stated. Um, but uh, as the book proves, Matthew is ready to take on all of these challenges. <laughs> um, and uh, in the book, he does just this in a refreshingly direct and um, systematic way. Um, so I'm, I'm eager to get to uh, talking about uh, the thread of argument that 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 runs through uh, the book, but let's begin where 
we normally do. Uh, Matthew, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, thanks, Bob. So I was born in Taiwan, and I came from a family with a really strong science background. So, for example, my father's a, a retired mecha mechanical engineer. Uh, I have one older brother who's a physicist and another who's an electrical engineer and a sister who's a biochemist. So, wow. yeah, <laughs> so I'm a bit of a black sheep in the family. Um, and when I started my undergraduate studies, I was uh, taking math and economics classes and, but I was also uh, always really interested in their philosophical underpinnings. So, for example, in economics, there's this basic assumption that, you know, people are inherently self-interested. And I was always, you know, really wondering, you know, why, why make that kind of assumption? Um, and so I started taking a number of uh, history classes, uh, history of philosophy classes with Cornell West. Um, huh also a, a political philosophy class with Alan Ryan. And I wrote a number of papers on early and later Wittgenstein about, you know, sort of language games. Mm -hmm. I also became a research assistant for Professor Elizabeth Kish uh, uh, doing research on feminist political philosophy. It was there that really got me really interested in, in political philosophy. And with her encouragement, uh, I then went to Oxford to do a doctorate of philosophy in moral and political philosophy. And um, after my PhD, I became more and more interested in philosophical bioethics. And bioethics is a particularly good fit for me because it allows me to bring together my interest in philosophy with my interest in science, which I share with my family. Wow. Um, and... Um and today you are at New York University, is that right? That's, that's correct. So I direct the uh, Center for Bioethics uh, here at New York University. We have about 20 master's students here per year. Uh, and um, uh, many of them go on to do a, a PhD in philosophy. Well, that's excellent. Um, uh, well, Fantastic. Let's uh, let's talk about the book. Would that be okay? Yes, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, so, one um, of the uh, really admirable things uh, about um, the right to be loved is um, how methodical it is. Let me put it that way. Um, Thanks. So, uh, you know, it's it, it it runs in a very clear trajectory where um, it's very um, you make it very explicit at the beginning. You know that you've got this thesis, and in order to you know um, defend that thesis, there are just four or five steps, and that's how the book sort of progresses. It's um, you know it's odd how refreshing that is in a way, oh. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> uh, because um, it's it's not uh, as common in philosophy, I think, as it should be. Um, so you develop this important and I think striking thesis. Uh, you treat it very, very patiently and uh, you, you, you unfold it in a way that's uh, very careful. Um, and you begin at the very beginning. Uh, and that's where um, I think we should uh, start talking about the book. Um, and the beginning is the um, observation that um, this surprisingly broad range of official documents about human rights and charters and the responsibilities of States and institutions, to individuals, um, 
make the assertion that in some way or another, that children have a right to be loved or have a right to a loving household or have a right to loving relationships. Right. Um, that was totally surprising to me. I mean, in a way, I mean, I was familiar with all the documents. It just never struck me <laughs> uh, that how common uh, that assertion is. Um, now, that assertion uh, that children have a right to be loved um, presumes that children can be holders of rights. That's right. Um, and I think a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of philosophers, maybe a lot of legal theorists, too, um, find that already a kind of uh, striking uh, and perhaps implausible claim that, that, that children can hold rights, especially very young children. But you defend that claim. You think that even very young children can hold rights. Right. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that first step of the argument works? Yeah. So to a lay audience, it might seem really surprising that it has to be shown that children can be right holders at all. Because if you take the UN Declaration of Human Rights or Children's Rights, so, so let's just take uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it states that all human beings are born free and e equal in dignity and rights. So this, this would seem to include children as right holders. But when you look at it closer, uh, look at this claim uh, more closely, um, it's in fact surprisingly difficult to defend that all human beings can be right holders. So when philosophers try to defend this claim, uh, they end up adopting something like what Peter Singer calls a specious position, where speciesism is defined as morally favoring a particular species, in this case, human beings, over other species without sufficient justification. So what I try to do in this uh, uh, in, in response to this question is I try to develop a new account of right holding and I call this the genetic basis for moral agency. And it basically says that if a being has the genetic basis for moral agency, then that being is a right holder. And I try to show how uh, uh, all human beings, including infants, have the genetic basis for moral agency and therefore they are all rights uh, holders. And in the book, I also show that um, other animals, for example, chimpanzees, can also have the genetic basis for moral agency. If it turns out that they do have the genetic basis for moral agency, then they can also be right holders. So in this way, uh, this account is not speciest and answers Peter Singer's speciest objection. But does it also have the implication which might or may, may not be troubling to you that um, uh, only carbon-based organisms can be rights holders? Oh, excellent question. So in, that, that's really great. So I use the genetic basis for moral agency as kind of a shorthand. In the book, I um, was more careful to say that actually the claim, the, the, the claim that I actually defend in the book is sort of having the physical basis for moral agency. So that could be uh, carbon-based or non-carbon-based. But for all intent purposes, because most of the beans that we're acquainted with are genetic, you know, they have DNAs, they're carbon-based. So I sort of use the shorthand genetic base, uh, basis for moral agency. But strictly speaking, I think that non-carbon-based uh, beans, if there are any, and if they can have the physical basis for moral agency, then they can also be right holders. Oh, let, let me ask one more question. Sure. Uh, so, right. Um, uh, so the kinds of items or entities that um, 
couldn't be agents like ecosystems and things. Right. Um, could there, or, or, or are you willing to just say, which again, might not be an, you know, might not be a troubling thing to say that yeah. ecosystems just don't have rights. I mean, they have moral standing of some other kind. That's right. That's right. So, uh, well, there are two things, two ways I could go. So my claim is, uh, is a sufficiency claim. So it's not a, it's sort of saying that if you have the genetic basis for more agency or the physical basis for more agency, then you can be a right holder. It's not a necessity, it's not a necessity claim. So there may be ecosystems could be uh, right holders on other grounds. Um, but uh, I think that even if they are not right holders at all, uh, we could still have duties towards them because they might have certain intrinsic values that sort of deserve our uh, protecting them. So, for example, we might have duties to preserve the Grand Canyon because of its beauty. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely open to those type of um, uh, philosophical uh, arguments. Excellent. So, um, so then if it looks as if um, it's not as difficult as philosophers might have, have, have thought it to be, and maybe it's not as difficult as it might be surprising to, to non-philosophers to establish that children can be rights holders. Um, uh, then I guess the next sort of level of opposition right. <laughs> <laughs> or skepticism uh, just will be about um, whether a child can have a right to be loved. That is whether you know, children might be rights holders. It still has to be shown that they could have this particular right. Um, and so I guess there are a bunch of different kinds of questions here. Um, uh, what you want to argue is that if there's a right to be loved, it's a human right. That's right. Is that correct? That's right. Okay, good. So let's start with the human right part. Can you tell us about your view about human rights? You, you propose something called the fundamental conditions approach. That's right. So I think that human beings have what I call um, the fundamental conditions for pursuing a good life, where basically a good life is one spent in pursuing certain valuable basic activities. So by basic activities, I mean activities that are important to human beings, qua human beings, as opposed to qua individuals' life as a whole. So, for example, sunbathing is an activity, but it wouldn't be a basic activity on my account because a human being, qua human being's life as a whole, is not affected if a human being did not go sunbathing. And in addition, activities that are very important to an individual human being's life as a whole may also not count as basic activities because these activities may not be important to human beings, qua human beings' life as a whole. So in other words, it's important to distinguish between um, activities that are important to human beings, qua individuals' uh, life as a whole, and activities that are important to human beings, qua human beings' life as a whole. So, for example, being a professional philosopher is very important to my life as a whole, but being a professional philosopher is not a basic activity because it's not an activity that is important to human beings, qua human beings' life as a whole. And finally, the basic activities are ones that if a human life did not have, uh, involve the pursuit of any of them, then that life could not be a good life. So... What this means is just that human beings can have a good life by pursuing just some and not all of the basic activities. And some of the basic activities are as follows. Deep personal relationships with, for instance, one's partner, friends, parents, children, 
knowledge of, for example, the workings of the world, of oneself, of others, and active pleasures such as creative work and play, and passive pleasures such as appreciating beauty. All right. So um, maybe it would be helpful uh, to sort of position the fundamental conditions approach uh, within a sort of spectrum of some familiar views. So um, part of the statement that you just gave about the fundamental conditions approach obviously calls to mind certain kinds of capabilities views about human rights. Yeah. Um, and um, some other elements of what you said might um, uh, stand in some contrast with um, uh, certain kinds of views about dignity and human rights. Can you can you sort of position yourself relative to some uh, more familiar conceptions of human rights? Yeah, sure. So, um, so in the book, I explain how this fundamental conditions approach is different from, say, Martha Nussbaum's uh, central capabilities approach. And all too briefly, the hallmark of Nussbaum's approach is her emphasis on our opportunities to choose to do certain things. Um, that is capabilities rather than what we actually do. That is uh, what she calls functionings. And in a nutshell, the problem with such an account is that a significant number of human rights cannot adequately be explained in terms of capabilities, or so I claim. So, for example, capabilities do not seem adequate for explaining what might be called status rights. These are rights that protect our moral status as persons. So, for example, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, there's the right to uh, recognition everywhere as a person before the law. This is Article 6. There's the right to equal protection before the law, Article 7, the right against arbitrary arrest and detention um, or ex exile, uh, Article 9, and so on. And, and it just doesn't seem that one can sometimes choose not to be recognized everywhere as a person before the law, choose not to have equal protection before the law, choose to be arrested arbitrarily. Um, but in, <laughs> right. And so yeah. capabilities uh, don't seem to be able to, uh, the capabilities approach uh, doesn't seem to be able to address, uh, uh, explain why we have these rights. In contrast, the fundamental conditions approach, I think, can explain status rights. So when we pursue basic activities, uh, conflicts with others are bound to arise. And when, if and when such conflicts arise, we need guarantees that we will be treated fairly and equally. Fair trial, presumption of innocence, equal protection before the law, not being arrested arbitrarily and so on, serve to ensure that we would be treated e fairly and equally. And so as such, there are my view, things that human beings, qua human beings need, whatever uh, they qua individuals might need in order to pursue their basic activities. So in, a, in other words, their fundamental conditions for pursuing the basic activities. And that's why I think we have human rights to them. Okay. Can you, can you contrast the, the, the fundamental conditions approach with um, some more Kantian uh, views, perhaps? Sure. So I guess the dignities approach, uh, there's a question about sort of what grounds the dignity. Um, and usually people don't really uh, say very much. I've, uh, so for, take Nussbaum, for example. She thinks that uh, uh, dignity just arises out of uh, giving people the central capabilities, right? Mm -hmm. So one possibility, I, I mean, one possibility would be to think 
to say that, you know, dignity just arises out of giving people the fundamental conditions for pursuing the basic activities. But I think there's a separate, uh, uh, so you might also think that there's something separate, uh, beyond, sort of, there's sort of um, something besides this instrumental conception of human rights, right, where mm -hmm. uh, there's something more intrinsic. And that comes out of what we just talked about, whether uh, 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 whether children can have rights is basically it comes out of their moral status. So you might think that what gives them dignity is this, say, genetic basis for moral agency. And when they have this, um, uh, when a being has the genetic basis for moral agency, it deserves certain kinds of protection from us, right? And right. because it deserves that kind of protection from us, then various fundamental conditions follow. They're, they're, uh, they're, uh, what they need to pursue the basic activities are something that are uh, that are deserving of our protection. Okay. Yeah. Um, good. So uh, let's then say that um, we've got this fundamental conditions conception of human rights in place. Um, now, again, just as systematically as as the book progresses, the next sort of uh, item on the agenda would be to show that the right to be loved is a fundamental condition, right? right? Uh, if, the, right. if the target is to show that the right to be loved is a human right, right. and the human right is uh, to be understood on this fundamental conditions approach, then it looks as if the next, uh, the next thing to be shown is that um, uh, we need to, you know, being loved is one of the fundamental conditions for pursuing uh, a good human life. Um, so is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, so you know, in my book, I try to explain why being loved is a fundamental condition for children to pursue a good life. And I think some people will find this claim intuitive and obvious, maybe because of their own reflection on their childhood, their experience with child rearing, or their observation of the practice of child rearing. But other people have, have actually challenged this claim. They think that children, you know, don't really need to be loved. Um, and I think uh, what I try to do in the book is to uh, look at, uh, it turns out that psychologists have long theorized about the importance of early relationship for all aspects of ch uh, children's later development. So what I try to do in the book is to draw on their theories. And I argue that they're good theoretical ex uh, explanations of what, what, uh, why children need to be loved. So for example, I argue that they need to be loved in order to have positive conceptions of themselves, and that's needed in order for them to pursue the basic activities to become adequate functioning individuals. They also need to be loved in order to uh, trust others. Uh, that's, uh, that's also very important in their sort of socialization. They also need to uh, be loved in order to learn how to love others. So one of the, if you think that one of the core basic activities is being able to have deep personal relationships, then the capacity to be able to love others becomes very important. And finally, I also say that they're more likely to accept discipline, which is important to their de uh, development as adequately functioning individuals if they're loved. Um, so these are some theoretical reasons I gave for why uh, children need to be loved, why being loved is a fundamental condition. I also detailed a vast array of ongoing scientific research that showed uh, both the native, native 
negative consequences if they're not loved uh, as children and positive cons consequences uh, if they're loved. So just to give one example, it turns out that uh, there's evidence that children who are not loved, who, who sort of uh, live in neglected homes as children have smaller hippocampal, smaller brains basically when they're older, wow. significantly smaller brains. And that uh, also has been shown to affect their ability, sort of uh, it uh, affects uh, their physical, cognitive, social, and emotional development through the rest of their lives. So just one very quick question. Can you, can you say a little bit, because um, you, you get into this in the book a little bit, um, about what you mean by love then? So it's 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 love isn't going to be just the um, uh, love is going to have to involve nurturing or some kind of active components. Right. right. That's right. Uh, and in fact, it's got to be kind of hands on. That's right. It sounds. That's right. Um, and not just an affect. Right. That's right. So I have this uh, sort of um, I think love in uh, involves sort of uh, certain emotions as well as attitudes, as well as certain behaviors. So the way I define uh, being loved for children in the book is uh, they it's a highly uh, inter uh, high. Um, highly intense way of interacting uh, with right. another where they you have to value somebody for their own sake and what you seek physical and psychological proximity with the other and where you seek to promote their well-being for their own sake and where you desire that they reciprocate your love and uh, the evidence is that uh, at least uh, insofar that the empirical evidence is that children definitely need this kind of warmth. Uh, they they sort of they need the warmth. They need somebody who's warm and responsive to them. They also need somebody who respects them, who value them for their own sake. Um, Fascinating. Um, uh, so okay, where are we then? So um, children can be rights holders. Um, there is a conception of uh, human rights as a fundamental uh, condition, you know, as fundamental conditions for living a good life. Children need to be loved in order to um, uh, pursue a good life. That is being loved as a fundamental condition. Great. Um, so far, it looks like uh, the account is doing pretty well. But oh, still <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess this is where um, uh, a lot of um, uh, skepticism or resistance comes in. Um, about the very let's put it in two ways. So one is the the very idea that somebody um, that there could be a duty to love another person. Um, maybe there's a, a a way in which um, love is not the kind of thing that's uh, commandable uh, in that way. Um, can't be required in that way. Um, and then uh, there's a, a further question about the particularity of it, like to whom. Right. To whom, uh, if there is such a duty, if there could be such a duty, to whom does it fall? Right. So let's let's start with um, and this, this will help us pick up on some of the, the things you were saying at the end of um, uh, your, your reply to the last question about what we mean by love. Right. Um, so you're committed to the thought that. It's possible to have the duty to love another person. Right. Um, and a lot of that turns, I guess, on about what you take love to be, but also um, what you take the emotions to be. Um, so could you run us through uh, that part of the argument? Yeah, sure. So 
So I think that love is a complex of emotions, attitudes, and be- behavior. I also think that it's important to distinguish between love, uh, loving somebody, and a loving relationship. And so, um, so what I the the objection that I'm trying to address now, this Kantian objection that you couldn't love at well, at well, is only an aspect of uh, love proper shall we say. So there's the whole loving relationship. And the claim isn't that uh, if you do this, then you can have a loving relationship. Obviously, loving relationship uh, takes a lot longer. It has a history um, and so on. But there's this idea that it's not even possible to love somebody at will because love is an emotion and emotions are not commandable. Therefore, love is not commandable. And if you, in order to have a duty, it must be possible to will the object, you know, the action at will. And if you can't do that, then you can't have a duty to love. Mm-hmm. So that, that's sort of the objection. And there are various ways to tackle that objection. So some people think that, well, love is really not, uh, they try to say, well, love is a behavior or love is an attitude. So, for example, Joseph Rass says that love is an attitude. And um, I think there are sort of related issues about how commandable attitudes are. Right. But, uh, <laughs> and I, I discussed that in the book as well. But I wanted to take on, uh, take the, the, take on, uh, take on the challenge uh, full, full on, so to speak, by uh, considering uh, um, what happens if love is an emotion, whether we can meet the commendability objection. And my claim mm-hmm. is that we can. Because uh, even if love uh, is an emotion, the claim that love is uh, emotion, the emotional aspect of love is never commandable, is too strong. Uh, so I try to do this by saying that, for example, that we can give ourselves reasons to love, right? So, for example, uh, we can think about why we should love a child uh, because they need it in order to flourish. And this would give us, this would pre prepare us to feel love for the child. We can also deliberately put ourselves in situations, this is what I call external control, where we are more likely to feel parental love for a child. So we might spend time playing with a child or read them um, a story at bedtime. We can also avoid situations where, where that would undermine our tendency to feel love for a child. So if, for example, you know, I know that I get cranky when I'm tired. I can make sure that I get enough sleep when caring for the child. And by repeatedly providing reasons and seeking out situations which make it more likely that I will feel love for my child, I can generate a disposition to love my child. And so I can, in that way, begin to cultivate a disposition to lo- love a child. And the general move is that I think that this idea that uh, emotions are not commandable is sort of based on a 19th century Germanic uh, sort of romantic romantic conception that reasons and emotions are completely separate, right? That they can't mix. And my thought was that if we go back to the more uh, a more Aristotelian conception where uh, emotions are something you can cultivate and habituate and so on, then that this this problem becomes much more tractable. Right. Yeah. Um, so this was just one um, one thought that struck me as I was reading this part of the book. And let me just uh, uh, try to articulate it on the fly here. Um, so 
What would you say if, if somebody were to respond that the kind of Aristotelian habituation idea where reason and emotion and affect are, um, uh, um, can be designed or can be uh, um, sort of cultivated uh, by agents, um, maybe with the assistance of, of friends and all the rest. Um, what would you say if somebody said, okay, Matthew, but that looks like I have a duty to try. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Not a duty to succeed. Yeah. So am I blaming, am I blameworthy if uh, I do all the things uh, that you suggest one can do? Right. And still just don't have the internal um, set of dispositions and attitudes and, and, and motives and all the rest um, uh, that would, you know, that would be necessary in order to love That's right. this particular creature. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so in the book, I mentioned that we need to distinguish between sort of the source of the duty from the person who's carrying out the duty. So the source of the duty would be sort of the well, it stems from the, the fact that uh, being loved is a fundamental condition for children to pursue the basic activities. Right. And so that source of that source would remain even if we try and we fail. Right. Um, and so, you know, you can imagine a situation where, you know, Bob, if I borrow $10 from you and um, I try my best to pay you back, but I, don't, I only have $6. Right. <laughs> so I, I, I try my best. And, you know, I, I, I only have $6. I can't pay you back. Um, I still owe you $10. Well, you know, I, I would still owe you $4, you know, after yeah. giving you back $6. Right. Um, <laughs> so that source of the duty would remain. But I've tried my best, so maybe I'm not blameworthy. Say, sort of through no fault of my own, someone stole my money, right? The money that I was going to give back to you. They robbed me. They, they, they took my wallet. Um, so, uh, so that's okay. I, I think that, you know, it's compatible with the, that, you know, that I'm not blameworthy, you know, that, you know, there's still the duty still remains. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm I, now just speaking in my own voice yeah. rather than just voicing what I think, uh, you know, the the the, uh, the the resistance might come from. I don't I guess I'm having trouble thinking that um, the duty to repay a debt is the same kind of thing as the duty to love. Right. Um, uh, looks like ten dollars is just ten ten items of the same thing. Right. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> So um, I don't know. Can you help me formulate at least the, the critical thought? And, and, and yeah. Um, so you could be saying a couple of things, right? So one yeah. is just maybe you're um, worried again, still worried about this commendability objection mm -hmm. that uh, look, uh, maybe all I have is a duty to try rather than a duty to love, right? Duty right. to try to love because you know it's going to be very difficult for me to just love somebody at will. And there, I guess I want to say that a lot of the, I mean, so in the book, I discuss the, uh, it turns out that, uh, you know, I, I sort of discuss various other examples. It turns, turns out that uh, most of our duties are duties to try rather than duty to do the thing, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, whatever, you know, uh, you know, if you play basketball, you have a duty to, uh, you know, as a basketball player has a duty to sort of make the free throw, 
right? But they they really only have a duty to try. I mean, nobody can shoot the free throw 100%, right? Even the right. best of them, right? Um, so, you know, if 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 the duty requires guaranteed success, then nobody can have a duty, right? So it can't possibly be a guaranteed success. You know, we can't possibly guarantee, uh, uh, require that somebody can guarantee the success of their action. So it comes down, so the, at, at best the duty you know, in order to have the duty, you know, we sort of say, well, we put the condition reasonable success, right? They, they try and, you know, um, they can reasonably succeed in this endeavor. But once you sort of say that the condition is sort of based on sort of reasonable success, then I guess I'm, now the worry becomes, it becomes less worrying with respect to the duty to love. Because I think that if we go through this sort of internal control, giving ourselves reasons, putting, uh, us, uh, ourselves in sort of external conditions uh, where we're more likely to feel love and then cultivating our dispositions, I think we have a reasonable uh, chance of, uh, you know, expressing that love for a particular child. So that that's sort of one way to address uh, that particular right. concern. Another, you might also be thinking, and maybe you, you'll ask me this later, but the, another word you might have is just that Maybe this emotional requirement is too demanding, right? It's asking too much of a person. And that requires a different kind of uh, treatment. But let me pause there and just sort of ask you whether that's where you were, whether I've you know, answered your question or whether that's where you're going. Sure, yeah. So I, 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 I did have in mind the demandingness worry. Um, but, but before, and I want to hear your response up. Before that, and this isn't addressed in the book again, but... Um, is there anything that that's lost that um, or that you're worried about losing? I mean, there is something, um, you know, one of the reasons why the sort of romantic uh, uh, conception of love yes. uh, as a, you know, something that befalls you or something that yeah. you're struck by rather than something you cultivate. Yeah. One of the reasons why that's such a powerful cultural um, uh, uh, idea um, is because there's something attractive about right, it. Right, right, right. Um, are you worried that there's something lost in this um, this alternate account of uh, of love? Um, so I think we like this idea that we sort of fall in love and it's sort of not up to us. And, you know, there's sort of this one true love. You know, we have this, you know, it's this romantic right. idea. Yeah. Uh, am I worried about it's lost? Well, I guess the question is whether it's, empirically whether it's true right <laughs> <laughs> and i uh, so i think that um i don't know if this part made it into the book but i i think that even with even with adult romantic love i think it's not true right, right. i think that we don't just usually um before we even fall in love we were we were socialized into loving certain people rather than others, right. right? We're socialized into thinking that certain characteristics are more attractive than others, right? right. Uh, right. You know, whether someone's height or whether, you know, their background, socioeconomic background, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, when we fall in love, it's, it's, it's usually a case of where somebody kind of fits all those bills, right? Like they, they kind right. of fit all the criteria, all the check, they, they check all the boxes. Right. But that that's 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 really the phenomenon. But then we discover that actually 
uh, there, we, there are actually more boxes, you know, and this is when people, <laughs> uh, you know, realize this is when the honeymoon period's over, right? They realize that, hey, there are a few more boxes and they don't check them, you know, and then we have to decide whether, you know, which ones are more important, right? And that's when we come to the realization, you, you know, that um, that's when that's when the hard work begins in the case of a loving relationship. Right. Um, right. right. Um, so. Yeah. So the demandingness uh, that, that was very helpful. Yeah. So, so the demandingness, uh, are you worried that this is too demanding? Um, so I think that it doesn't have to be too demanding. Uh, so one of the things we need is sort of a theory of demandingness. Right. right. And so I actually uh, and there's there I mean, this is sort of an active research area. And what I try to say here is that maybe the fundamental conditions approach can help us uh, set a lower bound. Right. So if if we have to give up our fundamental conditions for pursuing the basic activities, then I think that we don't have to, you know, then we there wouldn't be a duty. Right. Because it would just be too demanding. We have to go below that. Uh, but I think that in the, but I think that um, if it doesn't, right, if we have, uh, so for, uh, to take another example, sort of the upper bound, um, I think that if we have surplus conditions, right, so if we have uh, things that we really don't need in order to pursue the basic activities, then we could be uh, required to give them up. So in the book, I mentioned the example of Bill Gates, right? Say he needs, um, he has $80 billion and he needs $20 billion to do whatever he wants to do to pursue a, a, um, a good life. Uh, you know, there, that's still $60 billion that he, that those would be surplus conditions that he can be required to give up. And that sounds really demanding, but it's not because, you know, I argue that it's a surplus condition. Right. Now, in between, between sort of the lower bound and the sort of this upper bounds, uh, they're sort of in between where things could be get, they could require us to give up some of what we individuals, uh, you know, may think we need in order to pursue the basic activities, but they're not the fundamental conditions. And there, I think we could be uh, required to give up some of that. So morality could be more demanding than we thought. And so the example I have is this hermit, right? Imagine right. that you're a hermit, you left civilization in order to sort of have a peaceful existence. You don't, you don't want to socialize with anybody. So you sort of remove yourself from civilization. But one day you open your door and you find that there's a little baby in front of your uh, doorstep, right? And um, so the and so you know all about um, you know the the you know children the, the fact that being loved is a fundamental condition, right? So the mm -hmm. question is, do you have a duty to not just taking this child and nurture this child, but also to love this child? Um, and do you have this duty, even if it would undermine what you want to do, uh, you know, in life, which may, is mainly to sort of have uh, some sort of peaceful existence, right? So, right. and I think that you, you do, right? Because I think that uh, here's a case where uh, if there's nobody else uh, to take care of this child and this child really needs you to love her, then you have a duty to uh, love the child, even if it could sort of um, kind of make you, cause you to change your plans in life. Um, alternatively, uh, so say you have a prize wagon, Right. So th say you got the option of going 500 miles to give up the child for adoption. Right. 
right. to sort of uh, take the child to the next town so somebody would take care of the child. But uh, you build this really nice wagon that's sort of, you know, you, it's handmade. But during the trip, it's going to get destroyed, right? right. Um, I think that if you don't want to take care of the child, you got the duty to at least take the child to the next town. You can't just let, let the child die. So that's sort of the, uh, I mean, you know, using that example, I try to explain, try to test the boundaries and the limits right. and how demanding our obligations can be. Right. Yeah. So g- good. Uh, um, that leaves uh, and that leads into uh, the question, which I guess in some ways is sort of a big question. Right. <laughs> to whom does the duty fall? Right. Uh, and there's a short answer and then a long answer, right? right. <laughs> so the short answer is that um, it turns out that I think because this is a human right, uh, because every child has a human right to be loved, the duty is uh, uh, the duty belongs to everybody. And I see this actually as an advantage uh, because this means that when because uh, some, you know, some children don't uh, their their biological parents are deceased. Right. And, the, you know, sort of this duty, uh, the fact that everyone has a duty to love them would mean that someone has to step in. Um, so and other children have parents who are not deceased, but they're not adequate parents. Right. Either, you know, they, they just they're they're incapacitated or, you know, for various reasons, they can't adequately provide love for these uh, for a particular child. In in those cases, other people would um, still have to step in. And the nice uh, thing about this uh, particular account is that it it readily explains why we have uh, a duty to love uh, to see to it that every child has uh, 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 that every child is loved. And practically, uh, though, uh, what it doesn't mean is that everyone has to go and love every child, right? That's not right. just not practical. Practical. So, I distinguish between what I call the primary duty bearers and the associate duty bearers. And so, someone should be uh, um, assigned the primary duty uh, to love a particular child, but the rest of us have the associate duties to try to support the primary duty bearers through, say, taxation, uh, paying taxes, uh, supporting policies that will allow it to be the case that children are more likely to receive love, uh, adequate love, and so on. Hmm. Um, So... Let's talk about the um, the inadequate parents. Then. Okay. Um, so there is a discussion in the book about um, uh, again. Uh, I guess the philosophers listening will not be surprised to hear this, even if they're not aware of it antecedently. That there is a literature about licensing parents. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and um, uh, you're opposed to the idea that parents should be licensed, like we might license drivers or uh, uh, pilots. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, part of the, yeah. the argument. So, so far the argument seems very, you know, you, know, you might think that arguments so far I've given seems, uh, seem very child centered. Right. Right. And if it's a child centered approach, you might think that, well, we can go further than that. Well, why don't we just license, uh, parents, right? License biological parents, make, make them take a test 
or yeah. you know, in order that to make sure that they're fit to take care of um, uh, a, a child, right? And some people think that's a really good idea. Uh, so Hugh Lafollette has this seminal article arguing for licensing parents, and many other people have um, come on board, you know, sort of arguing that you know we should license parents the way we license uh, drivers, right, yeah. or or lawyers or medical doctors, right? right? It's a special set of skills that you need, and um, for which there can be you know serious damages if you don't have those skills, and so why not license them? And in the book, I actually I try to address this issue, and I think I come down to the side that actually we shouldn't uh, uh, license parents. And the reason I think that we shouldn't license parents uh, is because, well, these are what we're um, we're talking about, sort of uh, uh, parents. So we uh, let me just first say that we already have laws against uh, parents who abuse their children. Right. right. So these are not cases where they're, uh, you know, actual abuse or neglect. So we have laws that handled that can handle that already. So these are sort of regulating possible parents. Right. People who are um, going to uh, become parents. Right. And there's uh, no at least so far, no evidence that they're going to be abusive or neglectful to their uh, children. And the question is whether we should license them for their, you know, regarding their fitness. And I think we should, shouldn't license them because I think that biological parenting is a fundamental human right as well. It's one of those uh, uh, fundamental, it's one of those basic activities. Uh, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, in, in a nutshell, I think that, you know, because it's a fundamental, uh, uh, it's one of the basic activities, we shouldn't license, you know, um, we shouldn't license fundamental activities and therefore we shouldn't license um, and so it's kind of on par with, you might think it's kind of like freedom of speech, right? There are mm -hmm. ways of addressing free speech. You can either punish somebody after they've already spoken that, you know, um, or you can kind of license their speech, right? Make sure that they don't uh, say something offensive or whatever before they speak, right? Or before they publish something, right? right? Mm -hmm. And with respect, we think that free speech is also one of those fundamental conditions, uh, needed for pursuing the basic activity. So we don't license uh, speech, you know, you know, free speech. We sort of do it afterwards, after someone has been found that somebody is, say, inciting violence or um, shouting fire in the you know, theater, right. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so right. roughly that's the argument. I see. Yeah. Um, now, um, adoption. So uh, we know... Uh, Sad fact, uh, there are more children than there are um, people to take care of them. Um, does your view um, have some ramifications as far as a um, duty to adopt goes? Uh, yes. So I think that uh, there's actually a duty to adopt children without adequate parents and that we can, you know, straightforwardly, I mean, the, the right, we can derive this from the right of children to be loved. There, in the literature, there have been a lot of people who have been talking about, also talking about the duty to adopt. And they try to use uh, Peter Singer's idea of the idea of the easy rescue, right? Right. And they try to say that, um, you know, um, especially for people who are already planning to have children, right? They're using, you know, so you might, you know, some people, they try to have children, uh, but they can't, so they use expensive IVF treatments and so on. 
And uh, some people try to argue that uh, for these couples, they have a duty to adopt rather than use expensive IVF treatment uh, because uh, for them uh, to adopt, it wouldn't be that onerous. It would be a kind of easy rescue, right? They're already prepared to uh, pay the cost of raising a child for 18 years, right? And so, uh, and adoption, it doesn't cost very much more. In fact, it might even cost less than IVF, and therefore they have a duty to adopt. I reject that argument on the ground that actually the type of adoption that uh, this argument requires, uh, usually uh, 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 people, proponents of this type of argument, they're talking about adopting very young children sort of newborn babies who are very easy to adopt. They don't have any physical problems. They're healthy. Uh, you know, they're diff from different parts of the world, right? And where, um, you know, um, it would be very easy to adopt them. And in those cases, there's not a problem. Uh, uh, we don't really need a duty uh, to adopt, to apply in these cases, because parents are lining up uh, right. to adopt these children. I think uh, in Italy, for example, there for every one child, there are 15 couples who are trying to adopt wow. a newborn baby like, of th this kind, right? And, wow. you know, people spend all, like, a lot of money trying to adopt uh, children from China, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there's a, a group of children who do need to be adopted. And usually these children are much older right? They're above age five. They've been to a couple of foster care homes. It's, it's a really sad case. And many of them, it turns out that about 30,000 of them just in the U.S. alone age out of foster care. And what that means is uh, they go through life. They, 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 uh, they, they, uh, uh, they uh, become 18 and they never get adopted. Uh, and so they right. age out. Right. Uh, so after 18, they sort of they're on their own because they're uh, considered adults, but they never you know, they go from one foster care to another. And the evidence is real. Uh, it, 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 uh, regarding these children is really uh, sort of uh, sad. The statistics, you know, they, they don't do really well. They end up in jail uh, quite often. They're uh, on drugs, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so uh, I think that it would be good if we can have an adoption policy that can target these particular children. And what I say is that uh, the nice thing about my account, the human rights account, is that, uh, it, it, you know, these children would – there would be a duty to adopt these children. And it would, uh, it would come out of the account because they have the, uh, the, 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 the right to be loved. And um, – the, uh, and another, so then there's the question of, well, how do you get people to adopt these children, given that they're not easy adoption, right? right. They're much more difficult. And so one of the things I said in the book is uh, maybe we should think about, uh, so right now what we have is something I call the single parent, uh, 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 single family adoption scheme, right? And right. that's the idea that people, uh, sort of a couple in a uh, loving, you know, in a sort of uh, sexual related, you know, in a, in a family sort of, uh, 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 they get to adopt children, right? And <laughs> what I try to suggest is that maybe we can move towards uh, uh, an adoption scheme where 
people are not uh, related. Uh, they're not romantically linked, right? They're, maybe they're just <laughs> friends, and they want to get together and adopt a particular child. Uh, so, and it turns out that there's there's surveys that show that. Uh, so, for example, there's the Harris Interactive Survey, and they found that uh, they they interviewed a bunch of people, and they found that uh, women above 40, many of them, over 80% of them, have said that they would be willing to consider adoption of difficult cases, not the easy adoption. Right. But the more, you know, but they worry about the burden, about the demandingness. You know, they worry that they worry about the fact that they might not be able to do do it by themselves. And right. so uh, about only about four percent end up actually adopting, even though many have said that they would be willing to consider it. And yeah. And so the thought is that, well, if you have multifamily adoption schemes, right, so you allow sort of say someone who's already established, uh, say take the woman in the 40s and she wants to, with her best friend of 20 years, they want to get together and adopt a more, you know, an, an older child who may have certain disabilities or et cetera, et cetera. Um, this scheme would allow them uh, to adopt uh, such a child. And that seems like we can get uh, it seems like if we uh, explore something like this, we can get more children adopted into loving families. Right. Excellent. Um, so uh, I've got sort of one more question, uh, if, if you don't sure. mind. Um, you've been very generous with your no. time, and, and this has really been fascinating. Um, so we've been talking about uh, the right to be loved as a human right, and we've been focusing on children. And I understand that... If, Given your conception of what human rights are, that um, certain kinds of human rights are very important to fulfill, especially in the early years, right? Because they set the conditions uh, uh, for pursuing a, a, a good human life. Um, do you see any implications of this view for the elderly? Oh, that's a great question for the uh, for the elderly, for people who are vulnerable in a very kind in a way that looks to me at least sort of different, yeah. but they are a population that, um, at least in our country, um, is really, seems to me to be really underserved. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> question. So I think that possibly we can extend that. I mean, it's really sad that, you know, we have all these old age homes and um, people have to basically essential, uh, essentially they, um, you know, as we get older, we end up dying in old age homes by ourselves, you know, usually with uh, maybe children visiting, you know, once a week or if, if we're lucky. <laughs> right. And um, and so it would be good. Uh, and, and a lot of these uh, elderly uh, uh, people, they probably are missing that emotional component. They probably could use more love. And it would really serve their well-being if they were, if there were some sort of mechanism um, to provide them with this sort of emotional, uh, 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 sort of have more emotional components in their lives. So I, I, I you know, I, I didn't explore this in my book, but um, um, I uh, definitely think that possibly some of the arguments could be extended. I think uh, sort of especially the uh, there's. Uh, I mean, there's. It seems like there would be pretty good empirical evidence that uh, these uh, this this population is sort of emotionally neglected, 
and yeah. it's really affecting their well-being. They're usually pretty depressed. Um, yeah. And if you're and if and and if you're right in in the hunch, and I think that you are, that yeah. the arguments can be extended in this way. Yeah. Then it looks like a human rights crisis, yes. not just a bad making feature of a society that sort of neglects neglects its elders. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a human rights problem. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> I think I yeah I think I would be um, I think I would be uh, happy I'd be I'd be okay with that conclusion I I do think that I, it's it uh, so when I finished this uh, I actually thought a bit about the elderly and thought about extending the arguments there um, but I didn't um, sort of uh, develop it further at least for now uh, but I like the I like uh, I think. Maybe we do need to think of it in terms of the uh, uh, think of it in terms of a human rights crisis. So, in at least in other parts of the world, so if you take China, um, et cetera, et cetera, they had mechanisms for supporting the elderly. You know, usually right. the elderly gets taken care of in uh, families. Um, uh, my grandmother, for example, is very for she's ninety. She's very fortunate to be. She, we, I just came back from Cincinnati over, you know, over the holidays and she lives in, you know, her own home, but she's surrounded like my uncles and aunts and my parents, they're all, they all live very nearby within walking distance. Um, but she, I think she's one of the fortunate ones. Most people, at least in the Western, um, you know, especially in our society, the Western society now, uh, end up in old age home. And, um, and so, it would be, you know, like this would be something. This would be a human rights crisis. It would be something really worth looking into. That's a that's a great suggestion. I, you know, you should you should write a paper. About this <laughs> uh, Maybe yeah, I uh, that's an excellent suggestion. Uh, well, um, yeah. so let me just uh, wrap up. Um, so, w- what is the uh, what's what's your next project, Matthew? Uh, so right now, I'm working. Um, as like everybody else, working on a bunch of different things. But I have two main uh, book projects. So one is in normative ethics. Uh, I'm defending uh, non-consequential, uh, non-consequentialism, uh, mm-hmm. sort of try to have the most up-to-date uh, account of non-consequentialism that takes into account a bunch of different problems. Uh, and really, the working title of the book uh, will give you a hint of where it's going. It's uh, the working title of the book is called not just consequentialism. And so the <laughs> idea is just that a lot of people, so there's uh, for non-consequentialists, there's the numbers problem, right? How do they explain why numbers matter uh, if it matters, right? And so many mm-hmm. people try to say numbers don't matter. And they, you know, you have the Francis Kim and Tim Scanlon and various other people saying that numbers don't matter and they try and it's a, it's a tough it's a tough view to defend that's right that's right it's a very <laughs> tough view to defend because when the numbers get really big it seems like obviously that's it's the numbers that's doing the work right <laughs> and so the yeah. not just consequentialism aspect is trying to say that numbers can matter but it's not the only thing that matters right that seems mm-hmm. like the obvious way to go and then uh the the book tries to uh explain how how does it matter? And so the suggestion is roughly that it's one input, uh, it, it, you know, among a number of other considerations for an agent, um, and some of which, uh, and you know, it could be constrained by other non-consequentialist considerations. Um, 
And so I look at, uh, so the first, the, the book has three parts. One, the first part is about aggregation, about numbers. The second part is about intentions. So the, the relevance of intentions for moral permissibility. So people like Francis and um, Tim Scanlon, Francis Kim and Tim Scanlon and so on, they've been trying to sort of say that, uh, they, they've been trying to argue that intentions are not relevant for moral permissibility. And in that way, they're trying to have a view that kind of mimics consequentialism, I think. I think that's what right. the, 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 and I, I think that intentions are actually relevant. Um, and, um, and sort of the par second part of the book tries to explain why. And the third part of the book, which I'm really excited about, is uh, something I called moral indeterminacy. And that's sort of a part, uh, it's, 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 a, um, it's an aspect that just hasn't uh, uh, garnered very much attention by non-consequentialists. So the idea here is something like, um, you know, everybody knows about trolley problems and about the fat man case where it's not okay to push the fat man in order to save five people, right? right. But many people think that it's okay to, maybe it's okay to push the fat man, to kill the fat man in order to save, say, a million people. Right. Or if you don't like a million, say, a billion people. So what happens between five people and a million people? And it seems like this looks like it seems like there's a switch, and so this looks to like to be like a case of vagueness. Right. And so in this third part, I'm trying to look to the literature on vagueness, look, looking to epistemicism, supervaluationism, and various mm -hmm. psychological approaches to vagueness to see if we can shed light on on this particular problem. And so that's sort of and and I I think that there's some really interesting results uh, that one can get by looking to that literature and so that's sort of what I'm working on, and yeah so that's that's sort of one book. Uh, should I mention the other? Yeah yeah, yeah please. Okay. So, <laughs> that sounds fascinating. Yeah. I look forward to reading that. But uh, you've got another project. Yeah so the other project is uh, so I also work in bioethics and so right. another project that I'm working on it, which is probably this one will. Uh, I'll be working on this one first is the it's something called the future of the brain and mm -hmm. it's basically so neuroethics they're sort of uh, um, there's the you know it's divided between the neural science of ethics and the ethics of neuroscience and I have an edit volume called the moral brains coming out that looks at the neuroscience of ethics so that basically looks at what happens when uh, you know what happens to people's brains when they're making moral decisions under fMRI, you know, by using fMRI, right, to look at people's brains, to look at what, uh, what they're doing when they're thinking about ethics. This book is about um, the ethics of neuroscience. And so I'm going to start by looking at uh, bad brains. So people who are addicted, people who are in persistent vegetative states, uh, and um, you know, there, it turns out that there are various technologies that show that. So, for example, uh, um, um, uh, you know, when you're in PVS, you're not supposed to have any consciousness. But um, some people are apparently uh, under FMI, apparently they can respond to command. So wow. they got, you know, so if I ask you to imagine that you're playing tennis, your sensory motor region of your brain would light up. And if I ask you, to walk through your room, your spatial temporal region of your brain would light up. Uh, and they're on two different parts of the brain. Um, and they, gave, they asked uh, uh, individuals in persistent vegetative states to do the same thing. And some of them could 
uh, it, you know, when, when you ask them, you know, imagine that you're playing tennis, their sensory motor regions of the brain also lit up. And when wow. they ask them, you know, imagine that you're walking through the room, their spatial temporal region of the brain lit up. And so this raises question of what's consciousness and also the moral status of these, uh, these, these individuals. Um, and so the, the, you know, so the, the book is, uh, uh, gonna look at sort of the bad brains, and then there's the normal brains. The normal brains, I'll be looking at issues to do with, uh, you know, uh, cognitive enhancements um, sure. and, uh, you know, people taking drugs uh, in order to enhance their uh, cognition or emotions and so on. And then there's the better brains where uh, there are various technologies that, um, that, you know, you can use to go beyond um, so they're deep brain, there's sort of deep brain uh, implants, uh, they're sort of uh, um, uh, machine computer interfaces for uh, individuals, and all those can expand our current cognitive capacities. And then finally, the last section of that book is about no brains, right? <laughs> so what happens when we move beyond sort of something that is sort of uh, uh, carbon-based uh, brains towards something that is non-carbon based. So this gets into the debates about AI, artificial intelligence, and how we can live with sort of, um, you know, um, um, how how do we survive in, you know, when uh, when uh, machine intelligence become more intelligent, you know, become smarter than we are. So. Wow. Well, that's uh, that also sounds fascinating. I look forward to uh, to reading that uh, uh, and to reading things from you leading up to it. Um, but for now, um, I want to thank you again, Matthew, uh, for talking to us on new books in philosophy about your your latest book, um, The Right to Be Loved. Um, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Bob. Thank you for your excellent questions. <laughs> I appreciate that. Take care now. Take, take care. You've been listening to my interview with Professor S. Matthew Lau of New York University. We were talking about his new book, The Right to Be Loved, published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Taliste, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.